It's episode 63, and longtime friend Lawrence Yap is back on the show. He's here with me this time to share a glimpse into the fascinating world of current-day IMSA racing. And if you don't know what IMSA stands for, listen to the first few moments of the show and you'll have your answer. This format is incredibly gratifying, and I'm really, really lucky to have someone like Lawrence continue to share some of his experiences with all of us. The education continues in this episode. I'm your host, Trevor Byrne, and this is the Bucket Seat Podcast. Cool. Okay, well, anyways, Lawrence and I have been sitting here and we've been <laughs> talking we've about been, podcasts. We've been gabbing <laughs> and talking about podcasts, and we've been, we were talking for, I mean, almost an hour before this about stuff that we just can't talk about on the podcast yet. yet. Um, fun stuff that will eventually be happening and yeah. stuff that we will be able to talk about. But to everyone listening, welcome back to the Bucket Seat Podcast. So I am here with, I did say already, Lawrence. So that's Lawrence Yap. Lawrence is officially the uh, most frequent guest I've ever had on the show. Oh boy. I mean, I'm, I'm almost... Um, and it's not just because I live around the corner. No, it's true. I, I do want him on the show. And I think so do you guys who are all listening out there, which um, it means I've been doing it for a while, I guess. I looked at LinkedIn the other day and it said that I've been doing this for two years and six months or, or somewhere even more than that, maybe, which is shocking to me. I would listen to the first episode of the, of the show or a clip of it li- uh, earlier this afternoon and it made me laugh so hard, but it was still good. It, still it, good. Was, it was still yeah. good. It was, it was, and it's been a really fun, it's been a really fun experiment, something I'm really happy doing. And so we're going to do it more. And so for this episode, Lawrence is here and we're trying something new. So because he's one of the most interesting automotive experts that I know, we've teamed up to give everybody a new 101 perspective. This might be a one of one episode, depending on what topics we choose for maybe something else that's coming up but i suspect with some encouragement from everyone listening who's listening to this episode in particular we can get them to cover a whole bunch of topics with me which is something i would really like and there might be a lot of other people out there that could do 101 on other subjects as well absolutely but i want you on the show lawrence <laughs> i want you back so for this one it's imsa racing so for those who have ever heard of the term and You've heard it a million times. I've heard it a million times, but we're just too proud to look it up. I looked it up. I did it today. And it stands for International Motorsports Association. So they're the premier sanctioning body for sports car racing in North America. And so Lawrence's tie is what we are going to talk about today. And I'll let him explain what he's been doing with the FAF racing team and how it all ties to him. Is, is the FAF racing team, is that the right term? What, yeah, what is, we, call, the we call it FAF Motorsports. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it's our it's kind of our in-house racing team. And I think that what's interesting about our team is that it is uh, largely, if not completely, composed of employees that are, you know, have day jobs, myself included, that kind of do this for fun and because it's... It's something else to to engage our, ourselves in, in in our hobby, uh, and I don't think any of us really anticipated just how engaging it would be. You know, this is our first 
really, I think this is this this year was one on one for me, one on one for me as well, because this was our first year racing in IMSA at this level. Um, IMSA is a, as as you said, it's a sanctioning body. They run all kinds of stuff. So they run, uh, you know, we used to run uh, the Porsche GT3 Cup Challenge in Canada. They're the sanctioning body for that. They run the Porsche Challenge in the U.S. They run the Ferrari Challenge. They run the Lamborghini Super Trofeo series. But, you know, at the, at I guess, kind of the highest level, uh, they, they have what's called the IMSA WeatherTech uh, Championship, which is what used to be called the American Le Mans series. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. So that that's where some of the familiarity is drawn from then. That's right. right. Okay. You know, which is, you know, kind of, I guess, a North American <laughs> version of, um, you know, the, the Le Mans style rules. So it's composed of... Uh, I think this year it was seven sprint races and uh, four uh, endurance races, so six plus hours. The other races being two hours and 40 minutes each. Um, so it's kind of Le Mans style rules, uh, same types of cars as you would see at Le Mans, although the, they're set up, I guess, slightly differently. But, you know, three classes of cars. There are prototypes uh, that are kind of at the top level, uh, all run by kind of manufacturer teams um, or manufacturer-supported teams. And then you have uh, two classes of what you'd call GT cars. So they're production-related cars. Um, you know, uh, the GTLM cars, the GT Le Mans cars, they're the same things that you'll see run by the factories at, at Le Mans. So these are the Porsche 911 RSRs, the BMW M8s, the factory Corvette team. They're going to be running the C8R next year. You know, those are uh, still production related, but, um, you know, obviously highly, highly modified. And what we race is in uh, the GT Daytona class, which is essentially one mini rung below that which is where the manufacturers sell you a million dollar race car and then you're expected to go and figure out how to <laughs> how to succeed with it. Okay. Um, we're Sorry, very... so that's that's uh, GTD? Yeah, that's GTD. Okay, so hang on. Before yeah. we go any further, uh, four classes? Three. Th three classes. Yeah. Okay, so P1? Uh, DPI okay. is what, what it's <laughs> okay, called right. now. They've changed. Uh, which is essentially kind of an amalgamation of the different prototype classes. Um, a few years ago, uh, the American Le Mans series and um, the Grand Am series merged. So DPI is kind of the result of uh, the two prototype classes merging. So that's DPI. They're, that's, you know, custom-built, purpose-built race cars, no relation at all to anything you can buy on the street. Then you have GTLM, which is the GT Le Mans cars, and then you have GTD, which is the GT Daytona cars. Okay, okay, that all makes sense. Yeah. Having watched the race yeah. on was it last weekend? It was last weekend. Yeah, last yeah. weekend you were, and that was in Atlanta, Road Atlanta. Road Atlanta. You were down That's there right. for that. Yeah, I was confused when I saw all of the the uh, different categorizations because yeah. I, I, you know, it's been. Uh, longer obviously than I thought yeah. since when I watched uh, a race and when I was looking at them going god I mean I don't even know what these classes are anymore right. but then when I saw the cars it was funny my son Magnus who's five yeah. as he's watching he was asking what were race cars and as I was explaining it's like well they're all race cars but that one looks like a real car and it was, right. it was funny to try to explain to him the difference in that kind of the yeah. um the spectrum that you really get in this type of racing. And it's obviously evident to somebody who's not familiar with racing. Oh yeah. Um, but and it was, it was, you know, kind of a mystery to me until I was uh, immersed in it. You know, I've been a fan for a long time, but 
um, sports car racing because of the different classes. It's it's complicated. You have, you know, three classes of cars out there. They're kind of running at three different speeds. So dealing with traffic is obviously a big thing. You know, so it's uh, it's it's pretty interesting. But it's also what makes it fun. Uh, because there's just so much action and so many cars out there uh, yeah. all the time. No, sorry. So you said um, dealing with traffic, and that's yeah. a really interesting phrase on a racetrack. Yes. Anybody who's racing understands what that means. But if somebody didn't understand what you meant when you said that, yeah. maybe explain a little bit more of what that um, entails on a racetrack yeah. in a race like this. Well, so, you know, we just got back from from the 10 hour race at road Atlanta and you have these three classes, the DPIs, the GTLMs and the GTDs. And, you know, the DPIs are obviously they're purpose built. They're, they're the fastest. The GTLMs are a little bit slower than that. And the GTDs are a little bit slower than that. And over the course of a 10 hour race, the faster classes will end up lapping the slower classes. Uh, so, you know, the driver's ability to deal with traffic and to, um, you know, protect the car, but also, um, you know, kind of skillfully maneuver through all of these kind of challenges is a, is a big part of their job. Uh, the cars have a lot of interesting technology and I mean, we'll talk about all of the great gadgets on the cars, but one of the cool things that our, our race car has is a rear view camera, uh, which is not dissimilar to a rear view camera that, uh, you would have on a street car, except that it also has radar on the rear that will identify cars that are coming up on you and the speed at which they're closing and actually will throw up on the screen that's in front of the driver, you know, a big arrow with that's color coded that essentially says like, there's a car coming up on you really fast or there's a car coming up on you not so fast. No kidding. Um, I, I had no clue that that existed. Yeah. And that makes so much sense yeah. as, um, I mean, I remember it's kind of an uh, anecdotally, I remember hearing when, uh, in the American Le Mans series, the diesel Audis yes. in prototype, the prototype class, yeah. when they went to diesel, all of the other drivers in slower classes, and even in the, the it, was that a prototype class? Yes. That was a prototype class. Yeah. They were complaining because um, they couldn't hear the cars coming Too up. Quiet. They were so quiet. Yeah. And a lot of And they drivers, were also super fast. Right, super fast. Yeah. And a lot of drivers, I, I would say the majority of drivers, use all of their senses to detect mm -hmm. whether or not there is danger or there is something that they need to be aware of. And yeah. and sound was clearly one of them at that point. Yeah. So I don't think that the technology of that rear view camera was necessarily as prominent then as it is now. But yeah. it's interesting to hear that that is really, I mean, so is, is that widespread across the entire um, the field? Yeah, yeah. That's something now that I, I believe may even be mandated. Uh, and okay. it's obviously a safety thing. Yeah, totally. Uh, as much as anything else. Right. And and again, for anybody listening who isn't super familiar with that, I mean, between the classes, um, as Lawrence said, over the course of a race, there are cars that are being lapped, but there are also in, in basically every corner, every yeah. instance where there are multiple cars from the three different classes. Yeah. You know, the the slower classes, it's a, I don't want to say it's a gentleman's agreement, but it's an agreement that all of them have that you kind if, of get out of the way. Yeah. You get yeah. out of the way for the yeah. faster classes um, and let them take the corner or mm -hmm. let them um, take the inside or the actual racing line whenever it's most appropriate, because you know that you're not going to be faster and there's no point to try to drag race a car in another class. When there, it's just... there is a wonderful photo from the weekend of four wide coming down the back straight. And wow. It's, crazy <laughs> right. it's not something you really you know normally would see but okay so now when we talk about this race um 
it's a series. And yes. so that means it's traveling from city to city to city to yes. city. And when we were kind of thinking about the concept for this whole episode, the idea of it takes a village was one of the concepts yeah. that was right at the very forefront of all of it. And although there is a tremendous amount of money that's in this racing series, mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who aren't also making a lot of money in this no. series, um, but they are all part of it as a community. So maybe talk a little bit about the idea of this village that keeps this racing series going. Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll liken it a little bit to, to, to being in the circus because... You know, when you think about it at, at kind of a high level, it really is like being in the circus when you're part of this racing series. And actually, f frankly, part of any racing series, because what happens is, is that on Wednesday or Thursday, a bunch of transporters, you know, show up, everybody unloads their stuff, they put up a big tent, and then they 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 pull out their toys, and then they get dressed up in uniforms or costumes, and then they put on a bit of a show. Uh, and then after all of that uh, happens, they pack it all up and they move on to the next town. And, you know, it's a circus in the way that you, you know, kind of the logistical kind of uh, operational feel of it. Uh, but it's also a circus in terms of, you know, over the course of a season, and this was really my first season doing this, you become part of this community of carnies. You know, and <laughs> I love this. I love being uh, the idea of this being a big group of carnies. Oh, it, it, and it totally is because you're all everybody's got a little bit of a role in the show. And then you have the characters, right? You have, you know, the one guy whose voice I'm not going to miss is there's the make some noise guy on the podium. You know, it's they'll 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 give out the awards. And after it's like, OK, crowd, make some noise. OK, <laughs> but he's at every weekend doing his make some noise shtick and <laughs> uh you you know there's a a big tent that travels with the series where uh they feed the teams huge part of the task right because each team has dozens of people uh for the bigger ones they all need to be fed right and you get to the track and you know you just start doing the math on number of water bottles consumed and right, yeah. number of plates of pasta eaten and, and all of that. So they Sorry, have a big tent where they feed people. And remind me again, how many teams approximately? Okay. Um, in through, through the whole series, it's, it's tough to say, but in our class, uh, not every team did every race, but there, I think we're uh, at road Atlanta. There were 12, uh, cars in our class just there's, in gtd just in gtd right uh i think there's probably uh five or six teams in gtlm and there's uh three or four in dpi so it's a lot of people yeah you know never mind the 30 40 000 people that come to watch but just the staffing alone of um you know these uh these teams is crazy you know and it really does kind of take a village to put the car on the track. Like, never mind to get onto the podium or to win. Mm -hmm, Even mm -hmm. if you're lousy and if you're having a terrible race, like, you know, we we did for the first half of the season. It, you know, we're the probably the smallest team in our class. Everybody's got multiple roles and we're still like 13, 14 people. Wow. You know, going to every weekend. So you start to multiply that out and you go, okay, well, that's one team. So that's 13 people. You're flying to Daytona, for instance, for the 24-hour race. That's 13 plane tickets. That's, you know, 
if you're economizing and you're sharing hotel rooms, that's six or seven hotel rooms. That's a couple of rental cars. That is meals for all of those people. You have to uh, fuel the rental cars. You have to make sure that everybody is properly hydrated. You know, our truck driver drives the truck down and, you know, with all of the stuff in it, but then every morning he's going to Walmart and, you know, picking up water uh because you've run out like you literally cannot uh keep all of these people fed you know and and hydrated fast enough right it's yeah. really an amazing kind of when you start to look at all of the the moving parts it's kind of amazing that it happens at all and then you know this is all just like the car hasn't even turned a wheel yet <laughs> yeah and yet you've got these people that are yeah. you know part military logistics yes. part cruise ship management part you know music festival organizers yes. all for one individual team trying to bring this all together and then you've got to go and actually race your cars yes and in some cases for more than two hours and 40 minutes for yeah. in some cases for 24 24 hours yeah yeah it, it, it's 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 pretty insane you know when you look at uh the composition of our team and i, I i'm not good at math so you'll forgive me but <laughs> we have no it's not my strength <laughs> on this show either you know we have a team manager we have two engineers uh, one engineer just looks at data, just crunches the numbers. Real yeah. real time, pre and post, you uh, know, throughout real, no matter real what. Real time, pre and post. Uh, the car has something like 1,100 data points uh, wow. that are coming off of it. Like we could do a whole podcast on all the sensors on the car. Um, I was looking at some stuff this afternoon because uh, one of our engineers puts together like a really detailed post-race report. We had you know, a bolt fail on, um, you know, the car was banged up a bit during mm -hmm. this 10-hour mm -hmm. race. And so a, a bolt failed on the rear wing. And, you know, you can see in the data when the bolt sheared because suddenly the car developed all kinds of understeer, you know, in Scott Hargrove's third stint. Wow. And so all of this stuff shows up in the data. So, you know, we've got two two engineers looking at, looking at that. We've got two. Hang on, sorry. Before yes. we move on to that, yeah. the engineers. Yes. I mean, this may be a dumb question, but um, are, are they aren't just dedicated engineers for this race team? They have their own day, you know, I'm air quoting day jobs as well. On top of this, is or uh, what? well, one what one of them is a is full time. Okay. Uh, just as an engineer. Yeah. Uh, so he's uh, essentially an employee. We're pretty much his only client, uh, and he you know, does engineering for us. The second one is actually, uh, he just graduated university. So, uh, right now, uh, this is his, his only gig, but, uh, wow, you know, uh, so he's crunching all the numbers. Very cool. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So we've moved on from the, from yeah. the engineers yeah. now. We have two technicians that work on the car, mm -hmm. uh, that are kind of the lead, uh, on working on the car. One of them is a full-time uh, motorsports technician. The other one fixes Porsches, uh, you know, as his day job uh, at the dealership. Uh, we have two other techs uh, that uh, also uh, work in our dealerships day-to-day. Uh, -day. They're, I guess, maybe a little more secondary on the car, but they are over-the-wall pit crew. Um so they're doing tire changes. Uh, actually, all all four of these guys are involved in tire changes. Uh, the car is remarkable. You can kind of disassemble it. Like if you need to change the brakes in in the pits, you can do that. If you need to change the the dampers or the springs, you can do all of this in the pits. So, you know, that's a crew of four technicians. Then we have uh, a guy that just does fuel stuff, 
and I kind of help the guy that does fuel stuff with, um, you know, there's a whole dance around fuel. You don't leave fuel in the car. You only basically have fuel in the car when the car is running. So after every session, you're removing fuel from the car. You're weighing it. You're measuring it. You're moving it from one container to the other. It's just this whole dance of fuel. I had no clue that that was part of it. Yeah. It's That's interesting. It's, it's pretty crazy. And then uh, we have a crew chief that essentially, you know, if you were to look at this as kind of a military operation, all of the people working on the car or touching the car report to the crew chief. Mm-hmm. And so you actually have departments. So you have the techs, you have the fuel people. Um, you have, uh, you know, the, the pit crew. Uh, it's so you have crew chief, and then you have kind of the engineering department. So it's like it's organized, even though it's a small group of people. It's kind of organized into into different departments, right? And then uh, you have a truck driver, mm-hmm. and then you have uh, one person that is dedicated to wheels and tires. So, for instance, uh, during the Petit Le Mans weekend at Road Atlanta. Over the course of four days, you're going through something like 12 or 13 sets of tires. Set? Oh, my God. Wow. So never mind the sheer expense of it, but just, you know, running back and forth between your trailer and the Michelin trailer, constantly getting tires, right. unmounted, dismounted. I was going to say space and mounting and all yeah. of the process that goes along with so that. So all Colton does is... He just deals with tires and then, you know, you go and get the tires mounted and you got to make sure that the pressures are all set properly and that you're marking all the tires so you don't confuse your 13 different sets of tires because you are using different sets of tires for different purposes throughout the weekend. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's just this monstrous kind of effort. And you have to do all of this even if you suck. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. That that makes And I mean, with a... I mean, relatively small team, the um, level of scrutiny, I'm sure as well, is that, you know, nothing is going missed. It's a small, nimble team that if you're, you know, if you're not pulling your weight, I'm sure it's very evident to everybody around you that that's that's the case as well. Yeah, it is. And it's funny because my my entry into all of this was um, actually in the second race of the season at the 12 12 hours of Sebring. And Steve uh, Bordelotti, our race team manager, came into my office because my office kind of lives in the same building as as the race shop and he said we we need another body for sebring because it's a long race there's a lot of stuff to do stuff is far apart um can you come down and help and i said sure that'd be that'd be a lot of fun and you know my original job was just to deal with the cameras on the car because you know you have these mini GoPro things that you mount in various places in the car. Are they actually GoPros? Yeah, we actually use GoPro um, uh, session cameras, which I'm not sure they make anymore, but they're little cubic ones. Right, right yeah. And so what we do after every session was is we take the footage from those cameras and we sync it up with all the data. Mm, so okay, so it's the engineers will sync up the video with the data so you can see what's happening from the driver's point of view what's happening on the track and then what all of the data is telling you. Wow. That's, uh, oh yeah. I mean, this is a one-on-one for me. I swear to everyone, yeah. I don't know the answers to these questions. And so I'm learning as, as you are. Well, as was I, right? So, you know, it's like 25 gigabytes of data per hour between the video, all of the data coming off the car. There's, you know, 1100 data points. There's probably 30 things that they're watching live uh, on the telemetry telemetry stand and you know andrew our i guess our lead engineer 
you know, his favorite saying is, you know, math works because, you know, if you look at our, our actually our first win this year at Lime Rock, um, you know, he had it, he and, and our strategist had it calculated down to, you know, we basically ran out of fuel as we crossed the finish line. Um, wow. There was so little left in the car. Mm-hmm. And we do this thing with the fuel called pump out because after every session, including after the race, you pump out the fuel before the car gets measured and it goes through tech and everything else. There was like nothing left in the car for pump out. Just fumes. Uh, but that's the level of, of, of science that they go through that they go to. Yeah. I mean, this is precise. Yeah. Um, I meant to ask as you're explaining this dance, yeah, like any dance or any performance to get better at it, you have to practice Yes, outside of the race season. I mean, and, and again, I, I sound like a dummy to anybody who knows this a lot about racing, but I mean, what do you do to practice? What do, what does the team do? I know the driver gets seat time. Yes. Right, and they're out on the track as much as they possibly can, and and on a simulator, and on a, right, yeah. of course, and on a simulator. Yeah. But if I'm an over the wall pit crew, yeah, and I'm responsible for changing tires, and I'm responsible for pumping fuel, and I'm mm-hmm. responsible for all of the different components of of the, um, the 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 team is responsible for during the race, what is it? I, how do you practice? Do you practice, or is it simply show up and race, and you're learning while you're while you're racing? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Um, the season is. Uh, for us is now so long. It starts in January, you know, at Daytona, and it is now the second half of October, and we've and we've just finished. Right now, what happens is the car gets torn apart. Uh, everything that needs to get rebuilt, and there's a lot that needs to get rebuilt, gets rebuilt. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of prep work. This is when now we are engaging with sponsors a lot. Uh, so, I'll, you know, we do practice uh, the pit stuff. Uh, fortunately we've got some space in the back of our shop where you can kind of simulate it. We don't have a wall to jump over though. Okay. There you go. Um, so that's something that, that, uh, really happens kind of on, on site. And it's something where we really, as a team kind of made a concerted effort, you know, to improve during the year. I, I, I first joined up uh, at Sebring and kind of got roped into holding the fire extinguisher and, not really an important job until it becomes a very important job, but also like, you know, the regulations say you need to have a guy with a fire extinguisher over the wall, right? So um, everybody, you know, practices, you know, during these weekends. The weekend flow, um, which, you know, you typically have several sessions before the race. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, typically the, the way that, you know, a weekend unfolds in a very circus-like fashion, is you roll into town on, on Wednesday or Thursday. And actually, you know, for a typical race that's on a Sunday, uh, Thursday at 1 o'clock, they literally sound a horn, and that is when you're allowed to open your truck. Okay. And you open the truck, and you unload it, and every team kind of has their own setup. But generally, you are putting up a big tent. You're putting a floor down because you want, you know, A, nice presentation, B, um you know, you need a flat floor to do all of the measurements you need to do on the car. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole setting up the floor and setting up your tent routine. Mm-hmm. And then at the end of the day on that Thursday, you're doing what's called a fuel drop test because you have a, what's called an autonomous fueling rig, which holds, I think in our case, 160 liters of fuel. And the regulations state that uh, for our class, you're, you're, the, the slowest thing that happens is the fuel. 
the tire changing, the driver changing, any adjustments typically happen in less time than it takes to pump the fuel into the car. And so we're mandated to, I think, uh, do 40 seconds of fuel um, to completely fill the car. So depending on the capacity of your car and everything else, you're playing around with different restrictors to achieve exactly 40 seconds worth of, you know, uh, exactly 40 seconds to completely fill the car. Okay. So that's your fuel drop test on but wait, sorry, Thursday. You, you'd, you'd said um, autonomous. Yeah, what, it's, what, it's, it's, it's an autonomous tank in that it is... It's kind of stands on its own. Okay, it's okay, not, okay. So there's nothing that um, yeah, there's it, nothing that's happening without your uh, you know your physical hand or oh no no it is it a all. very physical yeah. thing yeah yeah and Paul okay. our fuel guy I was surprised for a second yeah. I thought wait a minute am I missing something yeah. in all of this yeah. um, okay and then sorry also just to clarify on the forty seconds yeah forty seconds is the maximum amount of time that you're minimum. allowed to spend or minimum, minimum amount of time you okay yeah. Yeah, so what we're trying to do is make sure that the 92 liters that our car takes um, comes down the pipe in in exactly 40 seconds or as close to it as okay. possible. And you're okay. fiddling with the restrictor to make sure that you can achieve that, but not go under 40 seconds okay. because then you'd be penalized, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that is... Um... That is like the tires, standardized and regulated fuel that every every That's team correct. has to use. It's yes. all from the same supply source. That's right. yeah. And what is the what I mean, what's the octane level? It's a hundred octane. It's a hundred octane. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a hundred octane, ten percent methanol. Okay. Yeah. And no matter where you go, every track, every race, it's yeah. all the it's same. It's part of the circus. The yeah. fuel guys the fuel travel runs with you. Yeah. The fuel okay. that the, makes sense. The fuel people go around with the circus. Michelin has three tractor trailers that go to every race just to service tires. Wow. It's crazy. That is crazy. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about it in terms of the setup process yeah. for the so for that's the weekend still. So that's Thursday. So yeah. by by the end of the day, Thursday, you're pretty much set up. Okay. So the way Friday goes is typically you'll have a practice session in the morning and a practice session in the afternoon. Mm -hmm. And the practice sessions are typically an hour long. And irregardless of weather. Irregardless of weather. Right. Yep. And uh, there's, you know, a couple of hours to do of work to do before each practice and a couple of hours of work after each practice because you've probably heard the term setting up. So you set up the car, uh, which essentially involves, you know, taking whatever learnings that you had from the first practice and saying like, oh, okay, and this is where the data comes in and we're analyzing the video and talking to the drivers comes in. If we make these changes to the car, we think it'll be faster. So that's what happens between sessions. Okay. And in between that, you're taking fuel out of the car, you're changing the tires, you're doing all of this stuff. After each session, you're doing what's called a set down because you need to measure everything, you know, before and after each session. So there's like this whole routine of you do set up before the session, you do your session, and then you do set down. So you kind mm -hmm. of take it all back apart. You measure to see if anything changes. Okay. So it's very scientific. Yeah, it's very, very scientific. So that basically eats up Friday. Okay. You have two one-hour sessions bookended by, you know, a couple of hours of work either side. And hopefully if you haven't had, you know, an incident, you're probably out of there by dinner time. Okay. Saturday, you have another practice session in the morning. Sorry, hang on. In terms of the team um, outside of the, the actual racing environment. Yes. What kind of camaraderie do you experience? Do you all eat together? Yes. Do you travel together? Do you, I'm sure nobody's going, well... 
Actually, I take that back. I was going to say, I'm sure nobody's going out and doing crazy stuff and being out late and, and, you know, enjoying themselves too much maybe, but, um, maybe that happens too. Um, it happens after you do well. Yeah, of course. Yeah, right. yeah. This is post-race. Yes. Um, and so what? maybe just spend a second talking about what it's like to be with a group of people like that um, outside of the actual race itself and, you know, and kind of trying to relax a bit before the, the next days. I think that's actually probably the whole, the coolest part of the whole thing. Um, we do all travel together and this is typical of most teams. Uh, you do travel together. Uh, you're stuffed into the back of a 15 passenger van, you know, together. Uh, we're sharing hotel rooms. Uh, we eat together because of the whole catering situation at the track, because frankly, you don't see much between the track and your hotel room. Okay. So you're not going, yeah, you're staying on we're the track. Exploring to... the, the, you know, the sites at all. Okay. Um, you know, that changes obviously depending on, on where you are and what the schedule looks like. Some weekends are obviously easier than others. The distance between your hotel and the track may dictate, you know, how much free time you have, right? So if you have a little more free time, yeah, maybe you maybe you might venture off-site for dinner one night. That's pretty much it. Okay. Yeah, that's the maybe the extent of yeah. the adventures. And the day and the days are long, right? Yeah, so, yeah you know, I'm sure everybody's super tired at that point. Everybody's tired. So Friday, you've done a couple of practices. You're probably, made, you know, planning on making some more changes to the car. Most days you're out of your hotel and at the track by, you know, seven, seven thirty, uh, you know, getting ready for your next session. So Saturday, uh, Friday is typically, uh, one more practice and then you're, you have qualifying midday. And so Friday's practice is, you know, it's obviously a lot more serious. Uh, you're really trying to, you know, finalize the fastest car you possibly can, uh, after qualifying, um, you take the car apart and you clean everything. <laughs> like you clean everything. Uh, you prep everything. It's, you know, kind of fine tooth comb, go through the car, make sure everything is perfect. That process can take a lot of time, uh, especially if you have repairs to make from any kind of off track incidents, etc. But, you know, the idea being that after qualifying for the race on Sunday, that the car needs to be perfect. So qualifying, how long are you on the track 15 for? 15 minutes. You get 15 minutes to qualify. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's very, very um, intense. Uh, and it's over really quickly. But Saturday, if, if In you have... In 15 minutes. Yeah. If you have a good uh, if you have a good qualifying session and you're happy with the car and you don't have any incidents, nah, Saturday is actually not too bad a day because you're kind of done by, you know two, three o'clock. There's maybe a driver autograph signing and then everybody, you know, can get maybe a little bit more rest and get prepped for the race on the next day. Okay. And I meant to ask from a driver's perspective, mm -hmm. we're talking a lot. I, I think the spotlight is often shone on the drivers oh, and, yeah. and, you know, rightly, rightly yeah. so they're, they're that they are the, you know, they're the celebrities in this world with a huge team working behind them to make everything happen. And, and they often are the ones that will, um, thank their team first before anything and yes. everything because of the ones who literally make sure it all happens mm -hmm. with your team. You'd mentioned Scott Hargrove. Yes. Do you have another driver? We have, well, we have depending on the race, we I was, have I was up gonna to say, four drivers. Right. So our, our so two hour, 40 minute race, two drivers, two drivers for a two hour, 40 minute race. So Scott and Zach Robichon, uh, are kind of our full season drivers. Okay. Right. Um, they both are former GT three cup Canada, Canada, uh, 
uh, champions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for the longer races, we've had Lars Kern, who is a actually a Porsche engineer from Vysok, uh, who uh, is still the current production car lap record holder on the Nürburgring. Um, no big deal. No, no big, big deal, deal at all. Yeah, uh, no. actually, that little thing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Lars is a great guy, and uh, I. I got to know him actually because he did the Trans-Siberia Rally in 2007 and 2008. Right, right. Lawrence and I talked about that in previous episodes. Um, There's lots of stories about Lawrence in that. Lots of stories. Um, And then for the 24 Hours of Daytona, we also had uh, Dennis Olson, who is a Porsche... Uh, they call him a Porsche young professional. So he's one of these, you know, sort of really young up and coming guys uh, that Porsche is supporting uh, Norwegian. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he joined us at the 24 hours of Daytona. Okay. Um, so Daytona, you need four drivers. All of the other endurance races, you need three. Okay. Yeah. This is totally, uh, not that we have a script, but it's off script in terms of what we've talked about. It just came to mind as you're talking about some of these drivers, the concept of, and again, I'm using air quotes, perfect for podcasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, a gentleman driver. Yes. Do, does it exist in uh, in this series? Does it not exist? Is it something that you're, I mean, I know you're familiar with it, but where does it sit in this spectrum, in it, this world? It does exist in this series. Yeah. Uh, but if you are going to be a gentleman driver in this series, you are taking it so seriously that you are essentially a pro. Okay. Uh, none yeah. of our uh, drivers are gentleman drivers, mm-hmm. but there are gentleman drivers in the series that are, incredibly fit, incredibly professional, mm-hmm. incredibly driven. Uh, so they're essentially pros. Okay. And I guess for anyone listening, I'm going to give my rudimentary definition of the gentleman driver. It has really nothing to do with the the way that they behave or how cordial they are. Uh, but it does have a lot to do with the amount of funding that they supply a race team. And and in, in a lot of cases, they are backing or are the um, the Primary, a, primary yeah. financier. They're typically a successful business owner that got the racing bug. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, got the racing bug so bad they wanted to race themselves and they are funding their seat and often the team, you know, in order yeah. to do that. Right. And, and uh, you know, there are many racing series that have these individuals in them that, um, that make it all happen. And I, I don't think that a lot of these series would exist without these individuals as That's well. And just like you said, most of them who have made it or are competing at this level are competing at a very high level they because take it very seriously. there's a lot of training. I mean, and from mental, physical equipment, all of the research and development that goes into mm-hmm. this sport, um, they take very seriously. Anyways, I don't want to dwell on it, but it yeah. was something I was thinking of. Um, I wasn't sure if it was um, if it was something that existed in this series. Um, I had, a, had an inkling that it did. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's good to know. So, okay. So we've gotten to... So now that's so so we're at we're at Sunday. We're at Sunday. Fan walk, which is like the best thing ever. Okay. Honestly, because it's like sometimes you get you don't you forget that there are fans. Right. Because you're, you know, so intensely focused on whatever task it is that you have to do. Mm-hmm. But there's, you know, one of the coolest things about this series is that there's a fan walk. They park all the cars on the track and then the fans are invited to walk around the track and to meet people. And it's like at Road Atlanta, it was unbelievable. You know, I saw the photos. Yeah. I mean, it looked like a yeah. concert. Yeah, tens of thousands of people, and you know, they're the fans are very knowledgeable. They, they, it's it's so cool when they you know kind of talk to them and they kind of know what you're doing and they know what you're up to. And wow, okay, like they're very well informed. Mm-hmm. Well, and I noticed too what I find fascinating about the whole concept of a fan walk. Yeah, especially watching what was happening 
in Atlanta mm-hmm. is the proximity the fans are able to it's so cool. to be at. They can get right up to the car. And, and the they amount can get of right the, up the to the money and the time and yeah. the technology and the secrecy that goes into each of these vehicles. And just, you know, moments before the race, there are the cars and all of the fans. You could literally reach out and touch the cars yeah. all the way along. Everybody's crowded around. Um, you can see everything in the car and there's really, I mean, it just, it's not a big deal ever that yeah. it, it's, it's embraced. I think that's one of the keys to, uh, this series success. And, uh, IMSA was actually purchased by NASCAR, um, uh, a few years ago and another new yeah. uh, piece of information for me. I had no clue. And NASCAR, if, if nothing else knows how to put on a good show, they know how to engage fans. And I think they've done a terrific job, uh, creating a very fan friendly, family friendly as well experience where you can really get up close to the cars. You can get up close to the drivers, mm-hmm. you know, the scheduling of the weekend gives fans a lot of time to, interact with the teams and with the cars and the drivers in ways that you, you really can't in formula one, you know? Yeah. As an example. I, and I, much to what you're, uh, to support what you're saying about NASCAR, the importance of creating a relationship or a bond or a tie between the, the fans and the drivers. Oh yeah. I mean, the teams for sure, the cars for sure, but mm-hmm. with the drivers and making sure that people understand that there is a person and personality behind all of them. Very much so. I mean, it just makes it um, a much more intimate experience when you're watching these cars go around the track mm-hmm. for you know extended periods of time. And there's drama. And oh, pe- there's drama. And yeah. people love drama. Yeah. And when you know who these characters are, it's a real life soap opera. Yeah. And um, and I you know I think I watched. There was a clip of two different genders of drivers um, having an altercation after, I don't know if it, it, it was, no, it wasn't after qualifying. It was after the race, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. That always adds to the liveliness of the yeah. entire event. And I mean, nobody really wants to see crashes, but a little bit of uh, excitement in the pits afterwards or during the race oh, yeah. is always exciting as well. Yeah. Um, so it's good. I think that they are embracing that really well. And that makes a lot of sense with yeah. the NASCAR ownership and yeah. using a page from their playbook yeah. makes sense yeah they've done a great job with that and then so then you have a race mm-hmm. and there it is and there and there there you are well we can right. stop here now Lawrence. yeah right, we're good uh, <laughs> so but it's a race actually, day and yeah. we're racing now yeah and actually even the logistics you know during the race uh, are actually pretty fascinating because you know we talked about tires we talked about fuel mm-hmm. you don't have a lot of space in the pits so you can't keep all of that there so you're constantly moving tires in and out you're constantly like you have a 55 gallon drum of fuel kind of up against the fence but you will go in the course of a race especially like you know road atlanta 10 hours like i think we went through three or four drums of fuel right so you are ordering fuel um to a, to to be brought out to to your pit and then you're connecting it to your fuel rig you're pumping it all into your your fuel tank that then, you know, dispenses it into the car. So you're busy for the whole 10 hours. Wow. Um, it's just this constant kind of cycle of, of things. And if there's, if something happens on out on track, you know, the car comes in, you might need to make repairs. Uh, you might meet, need to make setup changes. So there were, you know, we did, fortunately we didn't have a lot that, that went wrong. I mean, the car was pretty beaten up by the end of the, by the end of the race, but we'd kind of, uh, between, you know, the engineers and the techs, they'd kind of nailed the setup. So, uh, there was maybe one minor adjustment. So fortunately we didn't really have to deal with that, but it is a hive of activity the whole time. 
I meant to ask now the uh, the difference between years in terms of the cars and the setups. Mm-hmm. Um, this year was the first year that you were competing at this level. That's correct. correct? Yeah. Right. So now, um, you know, finishing up at Road Atlanta yeah. and having all of these learnings. Yes. Next year, do, will you, because wait, sorry, Road Atlanta is the final race yes, of that's the season, correct. right? Okay. Yeah. The season's um, over now. Right. Se- se- <laughs> season's over. Um, now that car will race next year. Yeah, that car will race next year. So we we started with a new 2019 GT3R this year. It's gonna be a good. It's gonna be good for probably another couple of years. Amazing. Um, you know the the amount of prep that happens between weekends is pretty amazing. You know the car is uh, one of the coolest thing of, things about it is how modular it is, and you'll have to come and see it at some point. But you know you can take the front bumper off with literally two quick release latches. Uh, you can change the front suspension um you know the damper uh, spring arrangement in about three minutes wow uh, you undo <laughs> a brake duct you undo two bolts and you can pull it out through a hole uh you know in the in the front trunk essentially of the 911 mm-hmm. um they can do uh brake changes in in the pits in in a matter of minutes uh it's the whole thing is is unbelievably uh modular it's unbelievably tough like you know, it's looking really beat up right now, but, um, you know, you'll peel the wrap off of the car and you'll replace a couple of pieces and, you know, do a big service and, you know, spend probably a couple of weeks putting everything back together, but it's an incredibly tough car. Yeah. Um, and well, I mean, it has to be the, the duration of, especially the, the endurance races is remarkable. Yeah. Um, when you think of, uh, its relationship to F1 and the duration of an F1 race versus the duration of a 24 hour race. Yeah. It, it, it really does put things into perspective. I think, um, when it comes to the idea of purpose built. Yeah. And one of the things that we talked about, uh, which I find really fascinating is how much of that car is real or not. When you look at it, uh, in comparison to a street car. Okay, well that's that's actually a very good question because the you know, the GT3R that we race, like if you look at take a 911 street car, start with a 911 GT3RS probably is the best starting. Point. It's a great starting point. Great starting great point. Great starting point. So, you know, a 911 cup car takes basically the whole structure of the GT3RS. You put a roll cage into it. The engine is a kind of distant relative of, of what's in the streetcar. Mm-hmm. Put a sequential gearbox in, different brakes, but it's still fundamentally the same suspension setup. Um, still uses mostly the same body panels. Uh, has carbon fiber doors, but you know, pretty close relationship to what what the streetcar is. One level up, you know, from that is what we're racing as a GT3R. The passenger sort of compartment is the same, so the core structure is the same, but everything forward of what would, in a front-engine car, be a firewall and a 911 is just a wall. Um, All of that's completely different. Uh, The front suspension is double wishbone instead of McPherson struts. Um, Again, very, very modular. Uh, Behind uh, the passenger compartment, I mean, the engine is still quite closely related, again, because... We're actually, you know, running restrictors, so maybe we're making 550-ish horsepower. Okay, right? yeah. Um, 
still has a suspension gearbox. Uh, rear suspension is completely different. All of the bodywork is carbon fiber. Um, so it, it's not actually a lot lighter because then all of the components are designed to last, not you know for an hour long sprint race, but for 24 hours. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's very, very kind of overbuilt, I guess, from that perspective. Um, but yeah, the major differences are all the bodywork, uh, basically everything forward of the passenger compartment. Uh, suspension is quite different. Wheel and tire package is quite different. If you were to look at the car from above, I mean, it's significantly wider. It looks almost square from above in terms of its footprint. <laughs> cool, um, yeah. And yeah, they, there's just, everything is adjustable. So, um, you know, there's, you can take an Allen key and you can adjust all four corners of the suspension in a couple of minutes. Uh, the rear wing has all kinds of adjustments that you can do. We've got, uh, we actually, our guys developed um, kind of quick release uh, uh, blockers for the um, air intakes and uh, the cooling systems so that you can kind of adjust, you know, airflow through all of those things, right? So it's just this very modular car uh, that is still, you know, it's still based on a Street 911. It, right, yeah. It started as something that came down the production line. Now, um, again, this is really exposing how naive I am. Um, is there anything on the car that is being, I mean, there's so much monitoring that's happening mm-hmm. over the course of a race. And, you know, we've engineers that are specifically tasked with understanding the data, yes. data behind everything. Is there anything that can be adjusted real time while the car's on the track or is everything coming in, like the car's coming back in manually being adjusted and sent back out? Uh, there are things that can be adjusted by the driver live. Okay. So the steering wheel looks nothing like your street car. It looks something like something, you know, it's kind of square uh, with two hand grips and it's got a bunch of knobs and buttons. I think one of the most interesting things about our car, well, the GT3R, not just our car, mm-hmm. it has... You know, variable traction control, variable ABS, uh, variable brake bias. Um, so all of those things can be adjusted on the fly from the steering wheel. Um, you know, uh, that's one of the, you know, sort of tools in the chest where uh, the drivers are conversing with the timing stand live uh, while they're out on track. So it could be, you know, during a practice, I'm feeling this. Okay. You know, go to position three on the traction control or go to this on the brake bias. So those are things that they can adjust live. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, it is so fascinating. I love the I, I love the world of technology and I love what happens, especially with a race team and support for minute adjustments. Like yeah. you were saying, when um, when a bolt sheared on the wing and you could literally see that in yeah. all of the reports post-race of exactly what had happened and where I'm sure you were seeing it when it was happening live. Yeah. Um, but now, uh, what we haven't talked about, I mean, we could do entire shows just about the race and the progression sure. of the race and how the drivers were doing. We're not going to do that in this show, but I do want to know, how did you do? What was the what was the end result of Road Atlanta and over the course of the season? Well, I think maybe we should back up to the start of the season because it started yeah. rather badly yeah, yeah. Uh, as, as rookies in this season. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, first year out, we've we've done okay in GT3 Cup. We got pretty good at racing one make Porsche series. Um, Daytona, uh, we did the, I think by my math, uh, 17 and a half hours of Daytona. Uh, horrible weather conditions crashed. The car needed a new tub. Um, you know, just terrible, terrible start to the season. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sebring didn't go that much 
better. Uh, we actually had a lot of speed, but then the car developed a, uh, an ABS issue that, you know, basically it had to be brought into the pits and worked on for quite a while. So we, I think we ended up finishing 10th or something. Um, steadily throughout the year, again, as we learned, and we were all kind of learning together, this was 101 IMSA for all of us. Mm -hmm. uh, things got better. Um, you know, we... Uh, Halfway through the season, we won our first first race at Lime Rock, uh, which is the shortest track uh, on the um, on the calendar. Then we won uh, at Road America, which is the longest track on the calendar. It's huge. It's so huge. And from there, sorry, not the track's huge. The win the is track huge. is huge. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then from then on, it was all kind of top five stuff. Uh, and at Road Atlanta, we finished third, uh, and we finished the championship in. Uh, third, which is pretty good wow. for the first year out. No kidding. Yeah. Um, Zach uh, actually won the driver's sprint championship. So he had the most points uh, in the short races. Uh, and Porsche won the manufacturer's sprint championship. Um, most, and, and, and you have to use kind of specific language because uh, Porsche won, like we didn't win the manufacturer's sprint championships because uh, there were a couple of other Porsche teams that contributed to that total. Uh, we right, probably yeah. contributed the most points to that total, but mm -hmm. it was kind of, you know, there's a couple of other teams that were running GT3Rs through the season as well. Right? Yeah, um, that makes, I mean, hell, that's, that's one crazy it's been amount a crazy of accomplishment year. over yeah. the course and the progression, of course. I'm yeah. always so fascinated with progression and, and that is a big one um, over the course of one season to go from where you did to winning races to then basically being on the, you know, the podium over the course of a season uh, yeah. in, in terms of the overall championship as well. Yeah. And what, I think one of the big things that we we've done and certainly because the learning curve has been so steep and every team does this is, you know, you do a massive kind of data dump and debrief after, after each weekend, you know, I mean, my role is minor. I hold a fire extinguisher. Uh, but even I had, you know, a fairly long list of things that, you know, I sent in to, to our engineer. It's like, here's like, 10 things that we need to address before, you know, the next race, because there was like a sticky connector on our fuel, you know, on the pipe that like sucks fuel out of the drum into our, into our fuel rig, you know, and if we don't deal with that, that's going to be a problem at the next race. Yeah. So it's, uh, but because all of us are kind of learning this together, it's, it's been pretty neat because we've all kind of also not just developed our knowledge, but figured out how to work better as a team right? Um, and how to cover for each other and how to help each other out. So everything, including putting down the floor and, and putting up the tent and, um, you know, moving things around, like it's, everything has just gotten so much better and so much easier over the, over the course of the year. Well, it's going to be really exciting to be a part of something like that too. Yeah. And, and seeing how it's all unfolded. I mean, like you said, the, the whole circus act that it is yeah. is such a fascinating concept to me. And I'm really happy that we were able to talk about it over the course of an entire show that it's just about the process. And it, it is. And, you know, I think one thing I would say to, to anybody out there that's listening to this is like, if you have any, if you're a fan of what, whatever it is, right? Like I, I'm, I'm a Porsche fanatic. So let's say if you're a Porsche fanatic, 
like there are a few will, of them out there. Yeah. You will see, you will, you know, find a way to get involved with with a race team at any level, because a it will give you a whole new uh, appreciation for the cars and what they're capable of. And this this applies to to any car. It, it applies to Miatas. It applies to Corvettes. It applies to uh, anything. It it certainly applies to Porsches. You will have a whole new understanding for just how sophisticated they are, the amount of abuse that they can take. You'll you'll go home and you'll get into your car and you'll you'll go like wow this is the greatest thing ever. <laughs> um, so a it gives you a, a, a tremendous appreciation for the car. B you make tons of friends. You become part of this uh, incredible community. And you know nobody is making. I mean there there probably are people uh, at the highest levels, the drivers and and team owners. Obviously you know uh, with the sponsorship and everything. Yeah, there's people making a lot of money at it, but. Mm-hmm. Pretty much everybody's doing it because they love it. You know, our team, we've got employees that are, myself included, they're doing it on their spare time. Um, our, Paul, our fuel guy, he, uh, you know, he's an ex-military dude uh, that owns a couple of, um, you know, rental properties, and he does this for fun. He doesn't need the money. He's doing it for fun. He's doing it because he loves it. And every, But, you know, you're part of a team that has a singular goal and mindset and it makes you kind of a better person uh you know because of that because you learn how to you know how to how to make all of that work right i mean there's a lot of hard work and some struggle and yeah all of the things i think that are testing of your character yeah especially when you're around a big group of people like that for for yeah. a, an extended period of time repetitively yeah and and you know you're traveling you're traveling with them a lot it's you know, there's there's there are things that happen in families that yeah. that clearly test your ability to be with someone for a long time yeah. uh over the course of a long time yeah. and so so that's just one of the one of the tests that i'm sure you're up against and you grow from it um you do and i think it's you know one of the things that i really take back to to work af- after these weekends is you know i i have a desk job primarily and uh you know coming back from a race weekend you you're sort of reminded a that it's cool to work in this industry uh, for sure but b you know when you're at the track you have this mindset of there's no no option to not do this there's no option to not complete your task and it's too you know pithy to say failure is an option but like if you don't do your thing the whole thing thing kind of falls down around you right so everybody learns how to you know, work together and, and do their thing and contribute. And that mindset, being able to take it back to work, I think, you know, it's good for all of us. Um, and, uh, I, you know, I said to Chris Pfaff, uh, multiple times during the season, I wish I could put all 1400 of our employees through this because it, it would just be a, so enlightening, be so much fun and C it would, you know, all of our productivity would just go the <laughs> well hey maybe you can use this episode to share yeah. with the whole network and they can all listen and kind of have a little bit of a, yeah. a glimpse into what it's like um to be part of this this whole group and the organization that's backing it that obviously has a lot of faith in in you and the team and everybody else that's part of this um i mean i, I was about to ask before you went into this what makes it so worth it despite all of this effort. And I think you explained it very well in the sense that you put a lot on the line, including your own personal time to be able to go. Yeah. And do it's, this. it's, you know, 
10 weekends away four or five days at a time that's no joke yeah yeah that's yeah. a that's a big commitment. it's a big commitment for for everybody yeah. yeah yeah well i mean i'm super happy to have been able to have you on to talk about this whole series what imsa means what it means to a race team what it means to you what it means to a manufacturer yeah um is there anything else that you wanted to uh, to leave everyone with um, before we uh, before we sign off? No, I, I mean, I, I would really say, you know, uh, obviously it's a pretty small and kind of specialized world and uh, you may or may not be a fan. Uh, but if you are a fan of cars, it is a window into a whole, you know, world of things that you, you never thought A was possible. Uh, and B, um, you know, could be, you know, pretty rewarding if you're, if you're an enthusiast, because you'll just learn a whole different aspect of the machines and, and of what it takes to, uh, to be successful and why some of these brands, you know, kind of are what they are. I like it. Very well said. And I would even take it a step further, even if you aren't into cars or even if you are into cars, but you're not into racing, just understanding a process like this, I think can be so fascinating. And maybe it's just me, maybe it's the way my brain works, but I think there are other people out there that are like it. And um, the appreciation for the coordination, and we've said it many times during this episode, the dance that mm-hmm. this is, is, is such a fascinating one. And I'm really happy that motorsport and racing is a part of something that I enjoy so much. And if this has at all opened anyone's eyes to what this could be for them, or maybe got them interested in it, or at least just gave them a new appreciation or understanding of um, the commitments that people put into this to to make it all happen. Um, I think this would be a successful episode. All right, Lawrence, thank you so much for being on for another episode. We've got to think of what our we've got to think of what our next one hundred and one's got to be. Oh boy, <laughs> <laughs> there's there are a lot of topics. So yeah. if you're out there and you're listening, and we haven't produced another one yet, I would say please do write. Um, I'm at Trevor at thebucketseat.ca. Uh, we'd be happy to humor. Um, suggestions. Not saying that we will for sure do an episode for you, but um, we're also um, open to any ideas and um, I love all the participation from the crowd. So thank you for listening. Um, This has been another episode of the Bucket Seat Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Byrne. I'm here with the wonderful Lawrence Yap and I thank him again for being part of this show. Um, Do stay tuned. There are lots of interesting episodes ahead in this season, season four. And um, You can find us all over the web at The Bucket Seat. So um, all I ask is that uh, you rate and review if you can. If you haven't already, please do. And uh, keep listening. There's lots of fun stuff coming up. And um, otherwise, stay tuned. Oh, wait, wait. It's me again, everyone. Before you move on to your next podcast binge today, I wanted to encourage you to listen to something called The Double Clutch Podcast. It's hosted by Addie and Jerry of DoubleClutch.ca magazine, and it's a great way to get up to speed on what's happening in the product world of automotive. They have a ridiculous circuit of new cars they review on their site and their podcast, and if you have an interest in honest and humorous banter about new cars, make your way over to the Apple Podcast and search for DoubleClutchCA. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Also, if you want to get yourself into some incredibly badass auto-inspired footwear, Check out Stripe Design for the best socks I've ever worn. They're the world's first high-performance driving sock with color and graphics inspired by the art, community, and heritage of motorsport. They're made in the USA and crafted utilizing the finest high-performance recycled fiber yarns. And like the machines that inspire us, their socks are designed with function first. 
They're durable, thin and light, breathable and supportive with just a touch of compression to keep your feet performing at their best. They're rich in saturated color and the fine detail they capture, the essence of motorsport that you can wear every day. So go and check them out at stripedesign.com. That's S-T-R-I-I-P-E-D-E-S-I-G-N.com. I really do vouch for these guys. Phenomenal socks. They look amazing and you will not be disappointed. 